Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, the relationship between China and the United States. Joining us now is the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Edward Lutwak, Senior Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Professor Lutwak, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, as the author of the backgrounder, you're tasked here with Presenting a view of China that includes a deeper historical context, and you note in your piece that it's essential to understand a Chinese conception of the world as a set of concentric circles radiating out from, from Beijing. Explain that. Well, uh, the Chinese uh, do have this concept, uh, which whether people actually consciously know it or not, whether any political leader knows it or not, still – is the, really the, their cultural basis. They don't have to know of the existence of the concept, even though they all do, to act accordingly. And just like in a logical strategy, you're going to have to st- study Clausewitz that the moment you go into war, you end up governed by that logic willy-nilly. So in the Chinese case, that's a very well-known concept of Tian Sha. Tian Sha, they're all under heaven, and it's the concept that, that the world is organized um, starting in a series of circles, starting with the emperor or the ruler of China, and then his immediate uh, people around him, his highest officials, and then the outer officials, and eventually you get to the non-officials, the common people, the ordinary people of China. And then beyond them, the, the various tribes and groups that are tributary to China or respectful to China, uh, on the edges of China, other foreigners, uh, and at one point, Western traders, when they arrived, they fell under the category of respectful foreigners who come humbly to deal with the Chinese. And then beyond that, you have the outer barbarians, the ones who uh, are not necessarily hostile to China, perhaps they just don't know China exists, the outer barbarians. And the whole purpose of the Chinese political system, polity, empire, Communist Party of China, you name it, is to basically bring everybody in a spirit of benevolence closer and closer to the center, which is bring the outer barbarians into be less outer barbarian and bring the inner barbarians to be closer to the Chinese and so on. In other words, it's a process of benevolent integration governed by the central authority of the emperor, which is based on his power, but is also based on his benevolence, and so on. And in fact, tribes that were dealing with the Chinese, many tribes had the experience of bringing them a few a few wet furs and getting more valuable silks in exchange. So right today, in this classification, the people closest to the heart of the Tianxia are Mr. Xi Jinping's politi- Politburo uh, colleagues. The other six guys in the Politburo, or perhaps the three or four who are really siding with him as opposed to not siding with him. And the outer barbarian, the last of the outer barbarians, would be the Solomon Islands, Republic of the Solomon Islands, because it recognizes Taipei and does not even recognize Beijing. So they're the outer barbarians in every sense. This is what governs it. 
And that is why they're completely unable to engage in international politics in a coherent or efficient way. And that is why they have, in the last few years only, antagonized and turned friends into enemies and well-meaning neutrals into enemies and so on. Because this, of course, is a completely self-centric perception of the world and is fundamentally unacceptable for everybody else. They, they wish to have their own lives, their own destinies, their own independent future. They don't want to be part of some Chinese scheme, particularly if it's a benevolent scheme. Right, which gets us to the fundamental question about China today. I mean the one that animates all the discussions that are had in the media, a lot of the ones that are had in policy circles, which is the question about the nature of its ambition, You know whether an increasingly powerful China can be reconciled to – uh, to use a term that's probably excessively anodyne, you know, good global citizenship, one in which it's part of a partnership of, with major powers, or is the Chinese view of the situation inherently zero-sum? That is, China wants to accumulate more power, of which it has no interest in sharing than anybody else. Uh, looking at the current Chinese regime through the filter of the country's history, how are you inclined to answer that question? Well, it's purely zero-sum, and you can get to it uh, – in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, for example, uh, the Chinese, uh, there have been many empires which are multinational, and the Chinese empire is also in part multinational. Perhaps 90% of the population, or even or 85, is actually Han Chinese, but the others belong to minorities. Now, the normal thing for any central state, powerful central state, is try to homogenize, as to basically do what the the uh, French rulers did with the different peoples of France, who were not all, but mostly absorbed and all made into Frenchmen after having been quite different. And this process of integrations are in China, on the other hand, the, the current regime indeed follows its own historic tradition in this, recognizes every nationality in China, gives them their own autonomous republics, autonomous uh, provinces or regions or subsections, and uh, positively encourages them to maintain their, their traditional folk costumes and dancing, and, but also, more seriously, language, printing publications in their languages, and doing all that stuff. Why are they doing this? They're doing it because it is ethnic in form, and indeed they keep it up and help them to maintain this form, so long as the content political content is entire devotion to the Beijing system. In other words, you can have all the cultural attributes because you can't have any other political attributes. So in Tibet, for example, the Tibetans uh, you know, uh, have been allowed to rebuild their monasteries on a huge scale, in fact, and maintain their costumes and this and that and so on, so long as they understand that the Dalai Lama cannot possibly live in Lhasa because he would have political significance. And all of the political significance has to be in Beijing and then expressed through Beijing officials. The same thing, that is really the same phenomenon that has turned the Philippines from friends into enemies of China. The Filipinos were very well inclined to the Chinese. The whole Filipino elite are, in fact, Chinese with Spanish names. I mean, uh, more or less. And... Uh, they, Filipinos were very proud and happy of the day they kicked out the Americans from Clark Air Force Base, Subic Naval Base, which were huge complexes. And 
And then what happens is that the Chinese next step expected the Filipinos to converge and become accept their place in the circle of the uh, barbarians, the inner barbarians. And they were, and of course, what did they do? They went and started occupying various islands in the Spratlys and so on, convinced that the Filipinos would accept it. Since the Filipinos as a whole are headed to be part of a Chinese Tianxia empire, why would they object if the Chinese Navy occupies this or this small island, which is only such a tiny fraction of the totality of the Philippines which is moving this way? So they're the only, they've, they've been playing this, they've had this attitude with, of course, with the Vietnamese historically, leading to a lot of conflict, and now very recent for the Philippines, with which there are never any conflict throughout their, their history. And, of course, Japan. Uh, in Japan, only five years ago, there were leading people, like former Prime Minister Nakasone, very old but very lucid, and the most powerful person in Japan, Mr. Ozawa, who was saying directly in words, saying America is done for, let's move away from Washington, let's go to Beijing and so on. And then what happened was that the Japanese interpretation, at least the pro-Chinese uh, people like Ozawa, was we go to Beijing, we make a deal, and we'll slowly ease the Americans out, and we will manage this process. And the answer is the Chinese said, no, we don't accept this. And they started raising the issue of the Senkakus because they do not want even to have allies or friendly countries to them that don't accept the premise. And the premise is, it's going to be a Chinese-organized world, accepted or else. And this is just embedded in the mentality. Now, none of it makes sense. None of it is rational. This is not, is, there's no rational sense to antagonize countries that were very friendly to China and had every good, solid reason to be friendly. After all, Chinese economic development was not like the Korean the Korean, even when we were already affluent, refused to buy anything, consumer goods from the United States or automobiles and things like that, or from Japan or from Japan or for anywhere else. They engaged, they signed uh, trade treaties and then engaged in conspiracies, customs house conspiracies to keep our product from the Korean market. Chinese never did that. Chinese have offered a big market. Yes, they export a lot, but they import a lot. They're friendly, they're... Everything was going in their favor, except for their dominant mentality expressed in their attitude in concrete detail, which causes all the present antagonism. You know, but then again, the greatest mistake one can make about any rising power is to try and understand what it's doing in rational terms. Well, that that gets us to a, a portion of your, your piece, um, which I, I note with interest. There's a, there's a section in which you say – I'm quoting you here. The Chinese government decided to awaken the world to its classically imperial territorial ambitions by demanding the cession of lands, reefs, rocks, and seawaters from India, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, except I have left one phrase out of that quotation, which is you say the Chinese government decided to do all of this very – prematurely from which two questions one why is it premature and two when would it be right from a strategic point of view what are the criteria china should have been waiting for to tip its hand well i by saying it was definitely premature 
in the sense that Chinese power is rising. China continues to grow economically at at least 7.5%. That's not 15%, 14 or 10 or 9 as they were, but it's still 75 that is at least twice more than anybody else, so three times more, or between two and three times more. And therefore, if they wait another 10, 10 years, assuming, in other words, that rationally, it was premature for them to try and express power before reaching the culmination point of the relative power. The Chinese growth, of course, is going to decline. Other people's growth may be increasing, like India's. So there's going to be a crossover point. But it would be rational to start raising demands when you are much more powerful than you are today. The Chinese, if they shut up and did nothing, said nothing, and just waited, they would have been in a far better position in 15 years' time. As it happens, they won't get there because they've already antagonized everybody. So final question that I'll put to you. Uh, Play this forward for me. I'm a senior foreign policy official in the federal government. And I've just heard your diagnosis about the nature and, and ambition of Chinese power. What are the responses I need to start thinking about as an American policymaker that keeps this situation in an equilibrium that is as favorable as possible to American interests? Well, the the way the Chinese are behaving, and which is far from uncommon for rising great powers, they're behaving like sleep, sleepwalkers. Uh, that's why it's so irrational to try. You can't really explain why they kicked the Japanese when Ozawa was bringing Japan to, to them. You know, it's it's a sleepwalker. Okay, and what do you do with a sleepwalker? Well, one thing is that if things get dangerous, you have to wake him up. Uh, it is said to be dangerous to wake up sleepwalkers. It probably is, but sometimes you have to wake them up because it's something more dangerous. In this case, the the Chinese have been have used force with the Philippines. The Philippines uh, is a country that uh, has many problems and repudiated this treaty uh, with the United States de facto, even while invoking a de jure and some because the paper is still there and some. But in the case of Japan, things are different. If the Chinese actually make a grab for the Senkaku Islands, it's imperative that the United States should not be in pro- contributing counsels of prudence to this. The United States should not call upon the Japanese to be prudent. It would be much better if the, if the Chinese make a grab in the Senkakus, as they did in the Philippines, much better if the Japanese Navy comes out and sinks them. Sinks them, publicizes the sinking, inflicts the humiliation, and it will generate all kinds of things in China, like hatred of Japan, but also generate accusations of corruption, accusations of incompetence, accusations of, of arrogance, stupidity, and being premature, because many Chinese feel that, of course. But if in the United States is there and, and tells the, inhibits the Japanese, tells the Japanese, don't do it, don't do it, and so on, then all the entire Chinese system will be encouraged to make another grab. The idea is that you can't have Strategy is not a free lunch. If you want to avoid the greater risk, you have to accept the smaller risk. If you reject the smaller risk, you get the bigger risk. So this is my advice. You're dealing with a sleepwalker. Get ready to wake it up.
All right. Our guest has been Edward Litwak, Senior Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You can read his piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.